Buongiorno, buonasera, salve, and benvenuti to the Salento Files. I'm your host, Margot Ferracci, and this is episode six, When in Rome. Before we get stuck into the episode, though, a very important announcement. The Salento Files has just clicked over 1,000 downloads. Thank you, thank you, thank you, dear listeners. We're doing all kinds of celebrations here, highly derivative of many Serie A players, and just as full of joy. Do you think we'll get another 1,000 in the next few weeks? Let's see what we can do. And now on we go to the mailbag. Episode 5, The Luxury of Choice, got people thinking about their own choices in Friends. One listener, RE from Queensland, tells me, and I quote... It made me think about why I'm still friends with some people who are actually just rubbish. Mainly a couple of mates from high school who wore gym gear to my birthday dinner and then calculated how much they owed on an iPhone. Well, Ari, I hope the Salento files won't be responsible for breaking lifelong friendships, but I do thank you for your comments. It made me also realise I've got a mate who talks about spring cleaning her friends every few years. So far I've made the cut, but I hope she'll let me know when that changes. And now to episode six. When in Rome. Now the saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans. But how often does that actually happen? When you've lived overseas, did you integrate? Or did you stick to the people, the customs and the languages that you brought with you? How important is assimilation? It's easy for us to ask people to become like us when they choose to live in our country, But is it actually entirely possible? And what does it mean for the next generation if it's not? When I went to high school in Swan Hill in 20 odd years ago, there were still a few groups of Italian families in the district who kept the old ways. Many of the Italian migrant families had assimilated by the time we, the first generation of Australian borns had come along. Even though my father was born in Italy, my mother was Australian. I went to the same state school she went to and I lived a standard country Australian life, down to my befreckled nose and my stubbed toes. The only thing that separated me from my classmates was my Italian surname. But there were some who insisted on the traditions brought with them from Sicily or Calabria back in the 1950s. And look, this is all over 20 years ago now, but I can easily name a handful of families who remained exclusively Italian, or perhaps more importantly, exclusive Calabrian or Sicilian, depending on the family. One particular family which really sticks in my mind had three daughters, one of whom, Francesca, was in my year at school. We all knew the story about these girls. They would be forced by their family into leaving school as soon as legally possible. Back then, that meant about age 15 or year 9. They'd spend some time working on the farm and after a few years would be subjected to an arranged marriage, definitely to a man with the same ethnic background, probably with an age double that of the bride. Francesca and I were in the same broad friendship group at school, but we weren't close friends. She'd never spoken to me directly about her situation. It was just an open secret at school so I never raised it with her. And one day, like we had all thought she would, Francesca just disappeared. I remember feeling desperately sad and scared for those girls and for all of the kids of the families who operated like this. Outside of school hours, we never even saw them. No netball for the girls, no footy for the boys on the weekends. 
Definitely no meeting up at the swimming pool over the summer. It's hard to believe, but this is only 1990 I'm talking about. For all purposes, we were steeped in self-conscious modernity, and yes, even in Swan Hill, two listeners in the city. We were just on the brink of the digital age. I mean, we even had Walkmans and then Discmans, a convenience in listening to music that could never be surpassed. So even though I shared some cultural background with these kids, the whole situation seemed incongruous with the reality I knew. My own plans for the future could not have looked more different. I also thought, a bit selfishly, that it made all of us with Italian heritage look bad. Every now and then I'd cop it about being a wog and I hated it. I never really had a response for it. Because, I thought, if that handful of backward families was what Australians knew of Italians... I could understand the antipathy. So those antiquated, oppressive families were really just bad for my mojo. I remember being pretty confused and asking a lot of questions, which started with the word why. It was explained to me by my mother, who, as an outsider in the Italian community, must have found it difficult to be as diplomatic as she was. But she just said that this was the way things were done back in Italy. Yeah, I said, but the kids were born in Australia, the kids that I went to school with, the kids that I was talking about that were going to be subjected to arranged marriages were born in Australia. I mean, we're all Australian now, aren't we? There is a great deal of euphoria and wonder in the discovery of different cultures. While visiting Hanoi some time ago, there was a debate raging in Australia about whether women should be able to serve as frontline soldiers. As I surveyed the Coochie Tunnels and understood exactly what the Viet Cong women contributed, I thought it was lucky that no one had told them that they may not be strong enough to fight. In Cape Town, I almost danced as I walked the streets. The locals were so musical at every point breaking into song as they did their daily chores. And although we brought a pretty good understanding of Southern Italian ways with us to the Salento, there are of course weekly delights in our continual discovery of Salentine culture. But there are no compromises in any of this, and that's important to consider. I've experienced all this while considering my own culture, without without having to throw off any bit of it. And when we talk about assimilation of migrant groups into the culture of their new country, that's exactly what we're asking. Reject what you know, what you brought with you, we're saying, and take on what happens here. In the end, we're all a product of our own culture. Our beliefs, our language, our priorities and our choices are are determined by the conditioning, both at home and in society, that we receive as we grow into adulthood. We may accept it and perpetuate it or react against it or a mixture of the two, but we can't ignore it. We can no more change our own conditioning than add five centimetres to our height. Of course, we can attempt to disguise it, but that is still a reaction to it, dressing it up or down depending on the situation, and it won't hold for long. Though we can try on all kinds of styles, our cultural conditioning is as distinctive as our fingerprints. My view of the world results from me questioning or accepting the beliefs I was raised with, as does yours. If you choose a future for yourself in a new country, you will encounter a new culture. Now, Aspects of this new culture may seem offensive to you or at least difficult to understand and challenging to integrate into your own life and your own family. In those circumstances, and this is the nub of the issue right here, do you have a responsibility to throw off your own culture and take on the new? After all, you've chosen this new country. That's your choice. 
Or, if your life as an immigrant is already impoverished, filled with difficulty, and every day brings new challenges, which are sometimes terrifying, is it okay to take refuge in your own beliefs? So how are we going on assimilating into the Salento? Since we've arrived, we've been trying very hard to do as the Salentines do. All of us are studying Italian. We're involved in the community and teaching English. Charlie plays soccer with the local club and Evie would very much like to, but she's a bit, bit too young. We attend all the school functions and participate as much as possible. But there are some things we simply cannot swallow. On the first day back at school after the Christmas or New Year break, the children were asked to describe what La Befana had brought them. Now, La Befana is Italy's shot at a fictional character who brings presents during the festive season. Charlie's face must have been quite blank when he was asked what La Befana brought him. The teacher asked me at the end of the day, didn't you have La Befana in your house? And tut-tutted when the answer was no. She had a valid point. How do you expect your kids to fit in when they can't even talk about La Befana with the other kids? Now, we'd actually considered foregoing Santa Claus in favour of La Befana. Realising I would have some explaining to do to the children, I did some research. I found out that the legend of La Befana varies depending on who you talk to. In one version, she is a kindly housekeeper who lets the three wise men stay with her on their journey to see the baby Jesus. Story goes, she was such a kind woman that the three wise men, upon leaving the next morning, asked if she wanted to accompany them to the birth of Jesus. She declined, citing housework as her priority. Now she lives a life of regret at that decision, and she flies the skies on her broomstick at night, looking for that same baby Jesus, and stopping at all children's homes as she does, leaving gifts. Another version puts La Befana squarely in the centre of tragedy. She is a grieving mother whose only child has died. When she hears of the birth of Jesus, she goes to him as she is deluded that he is her son. The infant Jesus, infant Jesus, is so delighted that he proclaims her the mother of all children in Italy. The one thing that Italians do agree on in this in the La Befana story is that if a child actually sees La Befana, she will take to the child and beat him to a pulp with her broomstick. So, along with corporal punishment, essentially what we have in the La Befana story is the worst kind of death, that of a child, grief, sorrow, madness, newborn babies making decisions to swap people's mothers around, and a house-proud Italian woman who wants to stay home and iron the pillow slips instead of attending the birth of the Son of God. Have we all stepped through the looking glass? Having said that, I do know a few Italian mamas who would be pretty torn about the pillow slips. Look, I'm not completely across the Santa Claus story, but I don't need to be. We've all grown up with it, and in Australia, he's a fat man with a white beard who is widely imitated in school interview parties and department stores for an audience of children who are rarely fooled into thinking that this guy with the polyester beard is the real thing. He's done his bit for diversity. One of his reindeer is disfigured. And the carbon footprint from his toy factory is largely offset by his environmentally friendly mode of transport. So, in the end, no La Befana in our house for Christmas. I couldn't make sense of it, and it didn't fit the way we think about things. Too much tragedy in there for me. Besides, she apparently arrives on the Epiphany. And if we're talking Epiphany in the biblical sense with a capital E, I don't know what that is. 
Now I realise that missing a local tradition is not in the same league as forcing your daughter into an arranged marriage. But the concept of not understanding that which you were not raised with is. If we were here for good, I'd have to make lots of decisions like this. Some have definite views on the issue of assimilation. Some of you listeners may have read the books Infidel or Nomad by Ayan Hirsi Ali. You'll know her story. For those who don't, I'll give you a brief background. Ayan Hirsi Ali was born in Somalia in a Muslim family. While growing up, she also lived in Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia and Kenya. She was the subject of genital mutilation at the age of five, like all the other girls in her family. She had an upbringing which she describes as typical for a girl growing up in that environment. She was told by her family from an early age that she was worthless by virtue of being a girl. She was made to succumb entirely to local Islamic teachings and was rendered choiceless from an early age. She eventually made her way to the Netherlands as an adult, officially seeking political asylum, but in reality escaping an arranged marriage to a distant cousin. She says that running away from her family to a new country was the only way to avoid both the marriage and also the violence that would erupt against her if she avoided the marriage from her clan. She lived amongst other immigrants with a similar background, but she learned English and she began to study. Once she did, she was astounded at what she found. She discovered that in the West, it's possible not only to choose your own religion, but also to choose not to be religious. She discovered an alternative moral system, not based on religion. And she continued to ask questions about her own background within her community. And as she did, she found herself increasingly rejected and threatened. She entered Dutch Parliament and spoke out against what she saw while living amongst other immigrants, which we'll talk about next. She was forced out of the Netherlands due to death threats from Islamic groups and ultimately had to resign from Parliament. Now on to Hercielli's view of assimilation for immigrant groups. There's been mass migration, as some of you will know, of African Muslim immigrants into Central Europe, resulting in what she refers to as cultural enclaves, where groups of migrants who have the same background land in their adopted country and live together, work together and operate exclusively within the culture of their homeland in their adopted country. Of course, these enclaves exist wherever there are immigrant groups, and we know these enclaves in Australia. It's natural to want to be amongst your own. Hirsi Ali, as, a, as an immigrant from Somalia, lived in such an enclave when she first landed in the Netherlands. But her innate curiosity led her to learn more about her adopted country and its values. And once she did understand the famous pluralism of the Dutch, she reacted against her culture and her cultural enclave and took up the cause of assimilation. She notes that in Western Europe, these unintegrated migrant groups are overrepresented in all the wrong statistics, crime and welfare dependency. In these enclaves, satellite TV from the homeland is watched exclusively. For her, it is simple. If you live in the Netherlands, you watch Dutch language television. She talks of the same practices being carried on in these enclaves as back in the homeland female genital mutilation, honour killings, forced marriages of young girls and application of Sharia law. The culture is perpetuated to the next generation, she says, born in the Netherlands, not only at home but also by the children attending purpose-built Islamic schools which receive Dutch government funding. Using her personal experience as the foundation for her views, Hersi Ali is a fervent support, supporter of mandatory assimilation, Local TV only, local secular government schools only. No government funding for religious schools. 
immigration planning which eliminates the opportunity to create cultural enclaves and highly restricted welfare for immigrants. As an aside and on the subject of ethnic TV, I'll never forget watching that hilarious and groundbreaking stage show, Wogs Out of Work, with Nick Giannopoulos and Alex Dimitriatis. Oh, Alex Dimitriatis. And Vince Colosimo, before we all hated him because of his character in Lantana. There's a skit where a young Italian kid is talking to his Italian-born mum who came to Australia as a young, young adult, married there and had her children. I can't recall what they're talking about, but at one stage the kid says, Ma, why don't you go and watch SBS? His mum replies, What for? I can't read. Anyway, back to Hersiali. You can understand her point. Cultural enclaves support differentiation. They are the enemy of assimilation. And in the examples she gives, insisting on your homeland values in a, new, in a new country translates to committing a crime under your new country's laws, murder, assault, pedophilia, kidnapping or abduction. These laws are made in response to the culture of that country, that in a secular society, individual freedoms supersede religious beliefs, that children have the same human rights as adults, and that inflicting physical harm on another person is abhorrent. In this sense, assimilation can be the only course. But sometimes it is the laws themselves enacted in response to different cultural groups which complicate efforts at more natural organic assimilation. In January this year, the Parliament of Bulgaria passed a bill officially denouncing the assimilation program carried out by the communists in the 1970s and 80s against Muslims of Turkish background. During that time, laws were passed to force this group to change their names, to suppress Turkish education and to forbid speaking Turkish in public. Of course, when the Turkish Muslims protested, violence erupted and five Turkish Muslim men were left dead. A 74-year-old woman who was interviewed this year as the historical bill was passed said, I still can't understand why they did this to us, to deprive us from our basic right to choose a name and a religion and speak our language. Here in Italy, the largest non-Italian ethnic minority group is the Romanians, and after them, the Albanians. These statistics, though, only include the official registered immigrants. The clandestini, or unofficial immigrants, are everywhere. They're mostly of African descent, and naturally, they stick together. Now, the new sinister cat amongst the pigeons in this country when we talk about assimilation is the presence of organised crime and its control of industries reserved for illegal seasonal labour. And it all blew up a few years ago in a town called Rosano in Calabria. That town is in the heartland of the Calabrian Mafia, the Nrangheta, 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 that's it, that last one. By Jove, that's a hard word to say. If only the Mafia had a suggestions box, I'd drop a little note in that asked them very politely all to use just the one name, the Mafia, and then to add the name of their own particular region after it. For example, in this case, Mafia, Rosano, Calabria. Perhaps they need a team of management consultants in to simplify their operating structure and to help them rebrand. I'll put that in the note as well. Anyway, down there in Rosarno, the local mafia's exploitation of clandestini African seasonal workers tells its own story. They were easy prey for the mafia farm business as, without proper identification, they were unprotected by the law. So they were exploited and mistreated. 
The clandestini used to go and stand in the square every morning and hope to get picked by the passing mafia trucks for work in the farms. They'd earn 20 euros for 12 hours work and pay 5 euros of it for transport. And if they decided to walk instead of going on the truck, they were beaten. In 2010, after another unprovoked attack at the hands of the locals, the clandestini took to the streets, demonstrating in front of the town hall and chanting, We are not animals. At the same time, locals with guns scoured the town, the town in vans, yelling for the clandestini to show themselves and be beaten. In the end, all the Africans were taken out of the town to holding cells for immigrants, and as they did so, locals stood in the streets and cheered. An Italian writer... Antontello Mangano, who is Sicilian of all things, has written a book entitled The Africans Will Save Italy. In it, he argues that it is the Italians' cultural conditioning which allows the mafia not only to survive but to progress. In contrast, he says, the Africans, because they are not conditioned from birth to accept the criminal treatment meted out by the mafia, because they have not watched their parents and grandparents accept it, and because they see it with fresh eyes for what it really is, they react against it. And about the riots in Rosano, Mangano says, this is a quote, the African community represented a true anti-mafia movement from the bottom. With courage, they lifted their heads, showing a high sense of state, much higher than our fellow citizens. Now, I'm sure these African clandestini would love the opportunity to assimilate, but the Italian laws enacted in 1992 are such that without papers, they don't ever have much chance to ever become officially Italian. Even their Italian-born kids aren't officially Italian until they turn 18, and even then they have to ask the government to accept them. These laws were enacted specifically to prevent the clandestini ever becoming Italian. Now, in August 2008, an 18-year-old boy born in, it- in Italy to Ghanaian clandestini did just that. He asked the government to accept him as a citizen. His name is Mario Bollotelli, and he is now a striker with Manchester City. More significantly, Bollotelli plays for the Italian national team, and although he was called up for the under-15s and under-17s national team, he couldn't play. Even though he was born in Italy as the child of clandestini, he still wasn't officially Italian. Before playing for Man City, Balotelli played for Inter Milan and endured significant racism from opposition fans. Juventus fans chanted, there are no black Italians, at him during a match in Turin, and he had bananas thrown at him in a bar in Rome. Balotelli is something of a bad boy and is the subject of as much media attention for his activities off the field as on. So he sounds fully assimilated to me. Now, I'll put a link to a song about him called Why Is It Always Me on the Salento Files Facebook page. Have a listen. It was written after Balotelli appeared in public with a T-shirt bearing the same phrase. There are perhaps a half a million children in Italy who have been born to foreign parents and who are denied citizenship, despite speaking their local dialect and being educated in Italian schools. There's about another million foreign resident minors, most of whom are raised as fully Italian. Italian laws represent significant barriers to assimilation to make it very difficult for these children to become fully Italian. Have you, dear listener, ever lived overseas in a non-English speaking country? 
Given the choice, did you bond with the locals or spend time with other expats? Did you live amongst them, learn their language, take on their religion and their customs? Well done if you answered yes, and please write to me and tell me how you managed it and reconciled it where it contravened your own conditioning. If we decided to live here over the long term, we'd have to make a decision to assimilate more. And we deal exclusively in cash. I now have the answer to Daryl Kerrigan's question about wogs and cash. The system here is so draconian, so overregulated and labyrinthine that cash transactions are the only way to get things done. I don't want to assimilate, but if we were here forever, the kids would really be Italian and would adopt Italian values, so we'd have to. Assimilation, when forced or when executed poorly, gives truth to the saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And the inhumanity experienced by members of the stolen generation are testament to that. How do you measure effective assimilation? Surely attitudes and decision-making are the best indicators, but they're hard to nail down. After 60 years of living in Australia, my nonna still doesn't speak English very well. Or at all. But when I told her nearly 10 years ago that I was engaged to be married, she said, but you can't get married, you have to go off and be a lawyer. Surely that attitude, more than a lack of English language, demonstrates her own attitudinal assimilation. And she now understands too that for my generation, being a lawyer and being a wife can coexist. How fortunate we are. We're all products of our own cultural conditioning. It's hard to shake unless we find something else which suits us better. In many ways, we've been rendered choiceless on the questions of assimilation here in the Salento. There really aren't any other Australians or even English speakers to form an enclave with. And we won't be here for the long term, so full cultural attitudinal assimilation has never been on the table. It would be terrifying to shake off my own culture and become fully Salentine. Part of that's because it would feel regressive. But part of it is also because it my views on the world, the way I want to live and the environment I want for my children are completely central to who I am. Just as those things are completely central to every immigrant who ever stepped foot in a new unknown country. So what happened to the girls I went to school with? Well, the oldest one was married off at 16 years of age to a 32-year-old man. They're still married now and have children, who must be almost adults themselves by now. The next two girls, the second one who was Francesca, who was in my year, stole away in the middle of the night, way up to Queensland. We thought they'd left school and gone home to the farm, but in fact they ran away. They were 15 and 13 years old respectively. At one stage they tried to come home and were threatened by their father, so they stayed away. I don't know where they are now. I hope they've found a path for themselves, and I hope their own children, if they have them, feel comfortable being 100% Australian. See you in two weeks.